I'm really excited about the conversation we're about to have today because it will be an update on a blog I wrote several years ago titled Four Reasons Food Contact Plastic Will Never Be Regulated. I researched the scientific literature and wrote the blog because I felt that we weren't being well informed about plastics and especially plastics around the foods that are meant to keep us healthy, our fruit, vegetables and leafy greens. In fact, this is the very reason we created our all-natural hemp fresh produce bag, to protect our wellness foods from plastic. So let's get this conversation started. I'd like to welcome Jane Bremer to the Gutsy Matters podcast. Hello, Jane. Hello there. So before we dive in deep, we'd just like to take a few moments to introduce you to our listeners. Jane is based in Western Australia and has worked for environmental health and justice for more than 20 years. Currently, she is the Zero Waste Australia campaign coordinator for the National Toxics Network. She is also a core member of the Break Free from Plastic movement and longtime member of the Global Alliance for Incinerator Alternatives. Jane's work addresses systemic failures driving the global waste and plastic pollution crisis. With a strong background in toxics, disputes and environmental justice, grounded in her own personal experience living next to WA's worst toxic site, Jane works to empower communities to defend their human rights to clean air, water and soil through the principles of community right to know and access to independent science and expertise. Jane is a member and works collaboratively with the International Pollutants Elimination Network, representing more than 700 public interest NGOs, working for a toxics-free future at the highest level with the international Stockholm, Rotterdam and Basel conventions. Jane's key motivation is the protection of children's health and this underpins all her work. Thanks very much for joining us, Jane. My pleasure. So I wanted to get through your intro just to give a bit of a background before we dived in deep. So let's get going. Are we being lied to about plastics and what are they doing to us in our environment and is this threatening the health of future generations? Well, that's a big question and (laughs) (laughs) and, um, it's a bit of yes and a bit of no. I think uh, the issue of the impact of plastic on our health is a very uh, rapidly growing and emerging area of science. Indeed, the world is waking up to the, the global plastic pollution problem that we're, that we're facing. I don't think that the petrochemical industry, which is the industry behind the manufacture and production of plastic, which is a fossil fuel-based industry, mm. I don't think that they have been honest all of these years about the uh, real impacts that their um, plastics and chemicals are having on human health and the planet. I don't believe the regulators have been doing their job adequately and ha- haven't been assessing for public health and safety and environmental protection. So all together, that sort of looks like a big no, really. And... It's quite scandalous that here we are facing the awful truth that our entire planet, our our bodies, our food chains, the air we breathe, the water we drink, every the highest mountain peaks and the deepest ocean trenches are all contaminated with plastics and their particles, whether they're microplastics or nanoplastics. Given that, 
there's a sense of urgency now for the world to the scientists to really provide the data that they should have many 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 years ago and um, and haven't we, I think we're in a lot of catch-up and the, and the, and the task is urgent we know that plastic leaches we know that uh, chemicals are le- leaking out of plastic packaging into their products and food we know that um, plastic breaks down into microplastics some of that's in our food and our water. It's in the air we breathe. Uh, we're exposed to microplastics everywhere. And we know that in the body, the very uh, characteristics that make plastic so useful uh, for us, that they're, that they're very stable and don't break down, that represents a really serious issue when that's in our body and these tiny particles can pass into our blood, our organs, the brain, and they can stay there, and that's what science is finding that they that they that they stay there, and they and they're not eliminated from the body. It's my understanding that they can even cross the placenta, making it a multi generational kind of a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. They have, I believe they found microplastics in 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 placenta and and the uh, the cord blood of newborn babies. I mean, micro and nanoplastics, uh, nanoparticles pass through, they get carried in the bloodstream. They pass through all the normal membranes in the body and can deposit with, with, it's documented, they deposit in the organs and the brain and that's where they can stay and as they do in the environment, uh, tiny, these tiny particles, nanoparticles and microparticles made of plastic um, have the ability to adsorb chemicals in their environment. So, you know, when microplastics are floating around the ocean, they can adsorb chemicals that are floating around in the ocean also onto the surface of those tiny particles in a way that's disproportionate to the size. So they become these kind of super toxic particles that become carriers and transmitters of uh, chemicals. That's what makes them so concerning to actually have in the body. That's a surface area thing, isn't it? Because they're small particles but with a surface area available for that for Yeah, it's about the ratio. It's a surface area to volume ratio. And so what what that phenomenon does, it allows significant amounts of uh, chemicals to adhere to the surface of that microparticle, representing a volume and a size greater than the particle itself. Mm. So that's what makes microplastics and micro uh, nanoplastics really dangerous. They can, their tiny, tiny uh, formation and volume to size, volume uh, surface area to volume ratio makes them very good vehicles of chemical carriers. Mm. They can carry a lot of chemicals on their tiny little size relative to their size. That's what makes them super toxic chemical highways. So if we sort of bring this like if we're thinking microplastics and nanoplastics, like how do we relate that to our everyday life? You know, when we're if we store some leftover food in a in a plastic container, or we buy some produce and put it in a plastic bag, or I'm just trying to think general ways people use plastic, a plastic water bottle or a plastic baby's bottle for for m- milk. You know, how does it relate to this nanoplastic and um, microplastic conversation? So uh, there's a few things going on. So microplastics can be engineered, uh, deliberately engineered, and some cosmetic companies and uh, other uh, products actually put microplastics in their product for exfoliation and those kinds of things. 
So Australia's introduced a voluntary phase-out of that kind of thing, as Europe did. So microplastics, humans can be exposed to them deliberately as an additive in a product. They're actually engineered. Then there are the unintentional generation of microplastics and nanoplastics, and that comes from larger pieces of plastic breaking down in the environment. So plastic that escapes and ends up in the environment, we know that microplastics are getting into the environment primarily through wastewater treatment plants. They're coming through our wastewater treatment systems. They're being generated via roads. Uh, uh, car tyres generate quite a, uh, a significant volume of micro and, and nanoplastics that get generated into the atmosphere. And then there's pellets that we create, which are typically small, tiny round bits of, of plastic that go into pre-production or, or some sort of further manufacturing. So there are multiple ways that microplastics get into our environment. Um, they're either deliberately engineered or they're as a result of, of breaking down in the environment, larger pieces of plastic breaking down in the environment. And that in the, in the ocean, that can be fishing waste. It can be discharges from uh, wastewater treatment plants. Pretty much most plastics are migrating from land-based sources into the ocean that way. That's the way everything flows from uh, agricultural regions also. And there's a lot of um, microplastics uh, in, in agriculture. So all of these land uses where sludges and manures and things like that that have come from wastewater treatment plants are applied as fertilisers on the land on scale, and on scale they're migrating into the ocean. And that's why we're seeing microplastics, deepest ocean trenches, highest mountain peaks, because they're, they have become environmental. They are in the air we breathe. We gener Cities generate vast quantities of them. They release from the land into the creeks, the rivers, and then on into the ocean, if they're not deliberately put there through um, plastic uh, waste and litter. So it's a serious issue, microplastics and nanoplastics, um, and it's really not being addressed in Australia at all. So are the major manufacturing companies actually taking action, giving the mounting scientific evidence that shows that plastic not only pollutes our environment but alarmingly damages our health as well? Look, there's, a, there's quite a few narratives out there and, and the big one at the moment is that there's just not enough evidence for us to point the finger at plastic causing harm to human health. Um, that's a, a very strong narrative in the marine biology and environmental sector. But when you speak to the environmental health scientists that have been studying petrochemicals for decades, they have a different story and they tell us that we know that plastic is made from petrochemicals. We know it contains a whole range of uh, chemicals that are known to harm human health, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, things like phthalates, which are commonly found in plastic, mercury, persistent organic pollutants like uh, fluorinated chemicals that are put in there to, to reduce its uh, susceptibility to catching fire and, and those kinds of things. So plastic, in my mind, it's very simple. Plastic is a, petrochem a solidified petrochemical. And depending on the uses, that defines its chemical signature. So there are a few plastics which are, are seriously need to be removed immediately, and they're things like polyvinyl chloride, polystyrene, those kinds of 
plastics that we really don't have a, a way to deal with these kinds of plastics. They're not, they can't be easily recycled. They end up in the, in the waste stream and they're toxic. So when they end up in the environment, they break down into small toxic pieces. Their, their, their contamination reach is, is big because they're not being captured and reused and recycled because they're made out of chemicals that don't allow that to happen. So those kinds of plastics, we have to immediately phase, we need to immediately ban them, frankly. PVC, polystyrene, those kinds of plastics which just aren't necessary. The big question that we really need to be asking right now is really, are we using plastic in a way that is fit for purpose in the, in the 21st century. Given what we know, given that every corner of the planet is now contaminated with plastic microparticles and nanoparticles of chemical toxicity mixtures that we know are neurotoxic, reproductive toxins, cause cancer, a whole list of associated human health impacts. Are we manufacturing plastics in the 21st century fit for purpose when we have such a dire and catastrophic pollution story attached to that product and I think the question is we actually need to stop using plastic and the National Toxics Network have been very clear on their message about plastics in general to resolve the global plastic pollution problem, we have to cap production. We cannot continue to be making plastic while the planet is absolutely saturated in it and it is linked to absolute human health and ecological decline. We have to cap production. And we have to look at what we're using plastic for. Do we need to be wrecking all of our food and selling it in plastic. You know, we really need to get a grip of what we're actually directing this, what is essentially uh, hazardous and toxic material into the um, mainstream society. We have to remove those toxic substances. We can't be making plastic that we wrap food in or it, it has such high consumer contact that contains persistent organic pollutants, phthalates things that harm human health. Um, we have to make plastic that is easily recyclable. And if we're going to do that, well, then let's make it reusable and really be committed to zero waste policy and an end to pollution. And then we have to really look at legislation to address the drivers behind uh, what's causing the plastic pollution problem. And that is the concessions and the free rides that the fossil fuel-based petrochemical industry gets um, without any accountability. There's no mandatory product stewardship, extended producer responsibility. We don't even have that as mandatory laws for what is clearly a really obvious subject to apply such a thing. So we have to stop producing it. We have to clean up the, the production stream, make plastic safe, and we have to only use it where it's absolutely necessary. And we need to have consistent laws around that in Australia and the world. What we have in reality, though, um, and, and I can tell you this with some authority, is the head of the chemical industries, the head of the European regulatory industries, have stated openly that chemical regulation is a failure globally. That has to be addressed. 
that has to be addressed as a priority. And it's a very pressing issue in Australia because the direction we're headed in Australia is to deregulate the chemical industry. And every Australian should be outraged about that because here we are on the precipice of global ecological destruction, climate change breathing down our necks, our oceans and our, our food chain and our bodies and even future generations, as you mentioned, are, are at risk from uh, plastic contamination. And what is our government and regulators doing? Deregulating the industry. And some of us have argued, well, maybe this is the knee-jerk reaction and the pushback from the fossil fuel industry. We're seeing fossil fuels, governments all over the world, acting on that. Well, the other arm of the fossil fuel industry is the petrochemical arm, and they're flexing their muscles right now, and governments all over the world are rolling over, and Australia is rolling over incredibly, comparatively poorly, uh, when we look at what's proposed in the EU and the US in relation to plastics. Uh, regulation. Despite the grandiose Australian waste export ban, um, we're not dealing with our plastic. We're just going to continue to burn it in incinerators and continue to export it. So the full life cycle of plastics is a really problematic issue. We have to remember that plastic harms from the moment we dig it out of the ground and extract it as oil to how we produce and manufacture materials and, and the chemicals out of that and to how we use those products and dispose of them ultimately. The entire plastics material production um, chain harms human health and the environment. And that's not a sustainable business model and it's not ethical. And we really need to um, address that and that's, that's really where NTN's focus is. And it's absolutely not sustainable for future generations as well, is it? Absolutely not. We're seeing the effects of plastic on, on human health, uh, we're seeing increasing incidences of childhood cancers. For me, that's the bottom line. Children shouldn't get cancer. And I think that it, it's indicative of intergenerational exposures. You know, we've seen that with pesticides. Pesticides are, a, are in the same company of petrochemicals and plastics. And we've seen the impacts of, of pesticides and their intergenerational impacts. The children of workers who have used pesticides that have been born disabled as a result of their parents' exposure. We know that endocrine disruption carries on through generations. We know that the chemicals involved in endocrine disruption uh, heavily uh, dominate the plastic industry. So, so we know all of these things and yet we're not, we're not acting. We even know that it alters DNA. Um, through animal studies, as far as the scientific literature? Yeah. The petrochemical industry and uh, and their regulators require this burden of proof, this causative proof when it comes to acting on, on anything. So a chemical regulatory system isn't able to respond to the uh, growing public health impacts associated with their industry because we don't monitor it. They don't really investigate it. There's really no watchdogs. There's really no one monitoring or, or watching. There's a handful of uh, independent scientists out there and you, you might have heard recently of Dr. Shanna Swan's alarm about the rising incidence of endocrine disruption and what this is having on future generations. 
work that's been around for 20, 30 years already. And here we are again talking about the same issues. And they all relate to petrochemicals, endocrine disruption, neurotoxicity, and all of the related um, health impacts around that. We don't have a regulatory regulatory uh, system that responds to that. And in Australia, we're in a really a backwards way compared to um, other OECD countries. So we've got a lot of improvement needed in Australia in relation to the regulation of chemicals and plastics. We're actually going backwards at the worst time possible. You know, the problem with this, this conversation and this issue is, is how long is a piece of string? It's such a huge issue, plastic, because it's about oil extraction. It's about dodgy manufacturing. It's about waste disposal. And it's about that entire cumulative adverse uh, impact that has on our health and environment. It's really hard. I find it hard to talk about it in terms of one aspect. Because when I look at a piece of plastic, I see oil now. I see oil and chemicals and I see polluted environments and and, um, exploited workers and exploited communities. So we know that there's scientific evidence shows that limiting our exposure to plastics can make a difference to our health. So what are the key things that you are doing in your lifestyle to limit your exposure to plastics and and what can we all do to limit our exposure to plastic? Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognise that we can live without plastic. I was just standing in my kitchen the other day and I... I live in an old house in, in Perth, Western Australia, and it's an old uh, weatherboard house, and we renovated it and we put in, you know, our new kitchen and, and a veranda and did a big renovation. And I'm just looking at it, and there's no plastic in my kitchen. It's all recycled timber and aluminium or steel. So I guess what I'm trying to highlight is that the most important thing is to recognise the the hazards of plastic and avoid them wherever you can. So if you're going to renovate your house, think about trying to do it without plastic and plastic coatings. Think about investing in zero-waste policy and choosing recyclable materials that can be given a second life and that have so much embedded in energy in them, like recycled timber. When you go to the supermarket, to not buy things wrapped in plastic if you can. It's really hard. But, you know, there are, if you're fortunate enough to be able to go to a fresh grower's market or a, a wasteless pantry, they're the kind of places if, you ha- if you're able to do that, that's a great choice. I choose to use uh, personal care products and cosmetics without microplastics and um, low toxicity. Choose low toxicity all the time because uh, plastics and chemicals go hand in hand and you'll often find them together. I choose to grow a lot of my food as well. There are many ways to live a a more conscious, zero-waste, tox-free lifestyle is inherently less plastic. So it's just about choice, really. I choose not to wrap my produce in plastic uh, you know my kids will tell you that they've uh, I've traumatized them for life because for the last 15 years they never took any glad wrap to school and 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 you know now they look back with, with fond memories about how smart their mother was but 10 years ago <laughs> they were ostracized so they're really simple decisions that we can all make 
you just have to to think about whether you need to use that plastic, whether you could use a brown paper bag, whether you could use a lunchbox that doesn't have any wrapping, whether you can pick your purchases and your your produce without plastic. Choose non-chemical or low-tox chemical plastic-free all the time and um, you'll be helping your own health and the planet, that's for sure. And they're just simple things, what we eat, how we get access to our food, how we live. Um, you know, there are some things that we can change in our lives and there's not some things we can't. Every time I get in my car, I look at the plastic and the chemicals embedded and I think, gosh, you know, this is cars are one area where it's very difficult to buy a plastic-free car. You know, it's very difficult to buy plastic-free clothes. You know, for example, it's, it's not an easy thing to live plastic-free and I think... There's no point guilt-tripping and shaming yourself. We all just do the best that we can because at the end of the day, the plastic problem is is not the fault or the cause of citizens. Despite that narrative being rammed down our throat by global petrochemical corporations all the time, that citizens have the power, that's a narrative designed to make you feel guilty and to put the blame onto you while, in fact, these huge global corporate companies like Unilever, like Nestle, like Dow Chemicals um, continue business as usual knowing full well that they're harming human health and the planet by refusing to change their um, materials production and eliminate plastics from their processes. So... Do the best you can, but don't give yourself a a guilt trip about it because the real problem here with the global plastic pollution problem is the corporations that are making it and driving it. Freedom of choice only, you know, can go so far in our world. People in Southeast Asia are forced to buy little sachets, plastic sachets, and and, uh, they're often referred to as pro-poor packaging, and there's no difference in Australia. Plastic packaging is targeted at the poor and and the people who can least afford to buy the more expensive and harder to find alternatives. So it's a difficult question because um, there's a lot we can do to live a plastic-free lifestyle, but I I really don't want people listening to think that the plastic pollution problem on our planet is a a consumer problem. No doubt consumers play a role, but they're not the cause of the problem. It's the global corporate petrochemical companies that refuse to change and uh, do the right thing when they when they have the power, the money, and the reach to do that. It's their responsibility. I'm so glad you pointed that out because I, I completely agree with you that that guilt trip um, about the consumers being the cause and the drive of the demand. You know, so th- thank you for speaking more of the truth and also for. You know, continuing that drive for getting the word out about oh, the truth about plastic and the and the and the connection between the chemical companies and the plastic companies, um, it's so intertwined and so interconnected that it's ultimately quite hard to understand. The full life cycle of plastic is a real eye opener once people really understand it. From from you know First Nations people. First Nations land being dug up and oil being extracted, fracking, LNG, those fossil fuel industries, they are the building blocks of the plastics economy. So the start of the entire plastics uh, economy is about 
harming First Nations people, harming the environment. It's an exploitative model of production. The products that are then made, the petrochemical feedstocks that then come from the naphtha that comes from the fracking and the LNG, that feed the entire chemical uh, manufacturing process and form the basics of, of plastics, you know, that manufacturing process has a whole load of toxicity and waste issues attached to just the manufacturing part. And there's elements of uh, colonialism in, in how that is done, what countries this industry chooses to make these chemicals and produce the plastic. Then you've got the end of the line, which is after people have consumed and used these products, they then become waste. And predominantly, plastic up until you know quite recently has predominantly been dumped in landfill where it escapes and gets into the environment or it's burnt in incinerators. When you burn plastic incinerators, you release all those toxic chemicals into the atmosphere. They ultimately deposit in the ocean and are taken up by the marine food chain. We poison the oceans, we poison the planet, we poison ourselves. It's getting back into the marine food chain. So this is an industry that has a very uh, toxic and powerful footprint on the planet And we have to remember that all the time, that it's not just a bit of plastic that you're choosing to dispose or recycle at the end of the day. That piece of plastic took vast amounts of energy and chemicals to get out of the ground to make into that, for us to use fleetingly and then to discard and the uh, waste management of that uh, short-lived material is then gone in a millisecond in an incinerator. It's an unsustainable linear economy and it's exactly the kind of systemic linear process that has imperiled uh, the planet. We can't live with this take-make-waste linear approach anymore. We have to look at circular regenerative systems and start to use those models instead of the fossil fuel dictated linear economy that has captured our planet for the last 50 years. It's really time for change. Well, wow. Sorry, I, just, I, I got on a bit of a tangent there and thought I'd have a, a closing comment. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'd I'd go longer than fifty years, but let's not let's um let's just leave that to ponder for a while. It's a lot to take in, and you know we do use plastics fleetingly, so taking this conversation and just thinking about it in our everyday lives is quite a lot to think about in a way. A lot of ways. In Australia, it's it's a lifestyle discussion about plastic waste has really dominated. So people are only concerned about what they're going to do with that bit of plastic at the end of its life. If people stopped for a minute and thought about how that plastic was made, how land was poisoned to get the building blocks for that plastic, the Indigenous peoples were displaced and their human rights undermined. Plastic is not just a bit of plastic. Plastic has a whole story towards uh, behind its entire creation before it even becomes a product or a, a material, you know, that that's sold to the public. I just think if people really understood the full life cycle impact of plastic, they'd they'd be more likely to, to not choose to buy it. They'd they'd walk away from it, like people do over fuel. People want electric cars. There's a huge appetite for it. People want cli- um, action on climate change. I think 
once we start to to recognise that plastic is part of that fossil fuel story, people are going to want to move away from it. That's my theory anyway, I hope. I hope. Absolutely. I think you've given our listeners so much to think about and, so, as Helen said, so much to ponder. It's been absolutely amazing and there's so much we, we probably could speak for hours on all of these yes. the topics that are involved, but we know your time's valuable and we really thank you very much for, for raising the awareness on all the things that we've talked about in today's conversation. So thank you so much, Jane. We really appreciate it. Very oh, much. Thank you.